Christ on his heart. And why don't you welcome to preach for the very first time, Brian Perry. So um, a few years I was speaking at, a, at an accounting conference. I was going to talk about federal and state income taxes. I was going to talk 50 minutes, and the guy who came up before me, he was going to talk for 50 minutes about some general tax things. And he's a good friend of mine. He's pretty witty, pretty, pretty uh, just a funny kind of guy. And he got up and he said that morning he was taking his kid to school, and he said, I was telling about my day, and I said, I'm going to have to go talk to a bunch of people, about three or 400 people. And his boy, who's probably first, second grade, sitting in the back seat said, well, Daddy, don't do like you did at Grandma's funeral and get up here and cry like a big baby the whole time. <laughs> so you never know what you're going to get up here on stage. Anyway, let's pray real quick. Lord God, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the blessings. We thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for Sunday mornings where we can come, we worship you, we give honor to Christ Jesus and his name and what he's given to us. I pray that your words will be with me, guide me and strengthen me as I speak today. I acknowledge that I can say nothing good if it's not given by your Holy Spirit. So I ask our eyes will be opened, our ears will be opened, open our hearts and our minds. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So two or three weeks ago, Terry started a short sermon series that was titled, uh, What We Believe and Why. And he talked about six foundational core truths that we know and that we hold tight to. And then last week, he, he gave a short, he gave a series, a sermon on now that I believe or after I believe and the authority and the power that's given to each of us when we're in Christ. And today, we're going to kind of continue that same theme, and we're going to talk about us. We're going to talk about the church, a little bit about the church. Not so much what the church does, but in what manner we do it. If we are living our lives individually and also collectively worthy of Jesus Christ and His gospel, if we're doing that, what will that look like? What does it look like if we're functioning worthy of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about. So turn to Philippians chapter 1. That's what we'll kind of start at today. In the book of Philippians, that's where the, Paul wrote that while he was under house arrest and imprisonment in Rome. That was his first imprisonment. That's where the book of Acts left off. That's where Terry's sermon series on the book of Acts ended about four weeks ago. Uh, while he's there, the people of Philippi had sent him a gift, some support, likely financial support. And now he's writing back to them. And he's writing back to give them a thank you for what you've done to help me. And he's also writing to encourage them. He's writing to exhort them. He's given them a little bit of information about some of his plans and what he plans to do despite his imprisonment. And he's also reassuring them about his welfare and the welfare of this man named Epaphroditus who kind of brought this financial gift or this gift to him. Now, a common theme of Philippians is joy even joy and suffering. The people of Philippi, of course, they were under attack, and so now they've got opposition, so he's telling them, in all this, be joyous in all this, rejoice in everything. Paul had a deep love and caring for the people there at Philippi. He had a close bond with them. It was there at Philippi from Acts chapter 16, we know this. He was beaten with rods, thrown in the stocks in prison and jail, but the, but the jailer himself then came and washed his wounds there in Philippi. In Philippi, that's where he cast out the demon from the young girl whose handlers were using her to make money. It's where he stayed with Lydia. He knew these people. He loved these people. And so when he writes this letter to the Philippians, you can see that throughout what he's writing. Let me give you some cliff note versions of Philippians chapter 1 real quick. Verse 3, he says this, I thank my God every time I remember you. Verse 7, I have you in my heart. Verse 8, God can testify how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
In verse 12, he addresses them as my dear brothers and sisters. Verses 12 through 18, he kind of talks about his imprisonment, and he's explaining to them how his imprisonment, despite being under house arrest, is actually advancing the gospel both there in Rome and the imperial guard there. And then verses 19 through 26, he tells a little bit about his own life in Christ. And he's telling them, hey, I'm confident that I know I'll be released by the power of God to continue my ministry for the benefit of you, the Philippians, and the other believers. So let's pick up in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 26 real quick. Verse 21, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. Now, at that point, though, Paul turns his attention. He's talking about himself and his life in Christ. But then he turns his attention, and he talks to the Philippians, and he addresses them directly. And he says this, Philippians 1.27, Above all, above everything else, no matter what, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. Now, some translations will begin verse 27 with whatever happens or just one thing. And it's almost as if, Paul, you can kind of visualize it in your mind. He's kind of holding up a finger saying, just one thing, guys, no matter what happens. Above all, live your lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a message that he says to each person there in that city, in that church, but also them collectively. You can see by his language, he's speaking to them as a group. And that's the message that God gives to each one of us individually. Am I living worthy of Jesus Christ and his death? But also collectively, we, are we living worthy? That's the message that God gives to us. And if we are led by God's Spirit, if we're abiding in him, then we're going to see the three things that Paul spells out in verses 27, 28. Now, Note this, and this is important. Paul does not say, do these three things, and then you will be living worthy. That is not what he said. He said, if you are living worthy, then you will see these three things. If we put aside the desires of the flesh, if we put aside our pride, our selfish ambitions, if we put aside whatever temptations and put those to death, if we're led and filled by God's Spirit, these three things are the fruit and the things that we will see. On the back of your bulletin, there's some blank lines, one, two, three. We'll fill those in right now, then we'll kind of go into detail on each of those. Number one, write this. Fighting or striving together for the faith of the gospel. We will be co-workers. If we're living worthy of the gospel, we will be co-workers in spreading the gospel. Some translations use the word working side by side, if you read those. Number two. Stand firm in the faith. I would summarize that as be ready. Don't be intimidated or alarmed by your opponents. Now, the language that Paul uses here, though, is actually, it's sort of unique in the New Testament. The language he uses is actually that of a horse being startled. He's saying, don't be startled like a horse. And if you've been around horses, 
They're easily scared, easily started. They throw their heads up, they prance their feet back and forth, and they're shaky. They're on shaky ground. Don't be like that. Stand firm. Don't be intimidated. Don't be startled. Don't be surprised by what's going to happen to you. Be ready. Be ready. The last one is this, unity. We will be standing together. Paul says that in there. With one spirit and one purpose. Some translations will use standing firm in one spirit. And the language that, that is used there, it's, it's military language. And if you know anything about Greek armies and Roman warfare, uh, the Spartans, if you've seen popular movies on TV, they will lock their shields and become sort of one big line. It's called a phalanx. That's, what it, that's the language he actually used there, is what he said, stand together, stand firm, or in unity, one. So let's go into each of those in detail. Number one, be coworkers. Scripture is clear. It is crystal clear that we are the body of Christ. And throughout Scripture in the New Testament, it uses the human body to illustrate how the church works and functions. And for me, there's a big difference in knowing that I'm part of a body versus being a member of an organization. When I think membership in an organization, I think privileges, I think rights. But that's not what we have. We are part of a body. I think two other things. I think I am a part, each part belongs in that body. That's the unity. And let's clarify that. Those who are in Christ belong. Those who stand with Christ above them as their Savior, Lord, as their mediator. We are a part of a body, and each part belongs. Number two, when I think of a body, each part has a function. And each part has to function well for the whole body to function well. Ephesians 4.16 says this, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. And there's two key parts of the New Testament that really dig into using the human body as an illustration of the body of Christ. That's Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So let's look at Romans 12. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has, its, has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophecy, speak out with as much faith as you've been given. If your gift is serving, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is encouraging others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you the leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have been given the gift of showing kindness, do it gladly. Now within this body, a lot of you are really gifted teachers. You know Scripture and the whole, the whole counsel of Scripture. And you can apply it to life situations, and we can put that out and help others explain it and understand it. Some of us have the gift of hospitality. There are people in this church who have the gift of hospitality that I can hardly understand what I see them doing. Some people in this church, you have an incredible gift for prayer. And I'm afraid that my generation, maybe the generation below me, is, is losing and forgetting the gift of prayer. So if you have that gift of prayer, exercise it and use it with all you've got. Now, within the body of Christ, some of you are the appendix. Yeah, I said that. Some of you are an appendix. And I grew up thinking, I believe I was taught this too, that the appendix didn't have a real good function in our body. And the only thing the appendix did is where bad things would gather and get stored. Popcorn shells and the, the, the shells and, and skins of, ne of, of nuts and seeds. And when they got too full of all the bad stuff, it just got inflamed and, and caused all sorts of problems in the body. 
But researchers now believe that the appendix has a very important function. The appendix is where good bacteria is stored, where it grows, and where it thrives. And when you have a major intestinal problem or a gut problem, and it gets cleaned out, the appendix then has the good bacteria that quickly goes back up into your gut and can repopulate it. Some of you are like the appendix, and you are the appendix in the body of Christ. God is filling you with the knowledge of his will right now. He is filling you with knowledge of Christ. He is pouring his spirit into you as you study God's word, as you know God's word, as you spend time in prayer, both alone and also as part of this congregation. He is filling you with all kinds of goodness and his goodness, and you are growing in Christ. That's what you're supposed to be doing right now. And there's going to come a time when you're going to be needed, and you come up and you feel the task and the need within this church. You are like the appendix. Some people in this church, you need rest from the task you've been doing and where you've been serving. Some of you are being called to do other things within this church, within a ministry, within the body of Christ, outside this church maybe. Find others, build them up into your role so they can take your role, and you can go do what you're being called to do. Some of you need exercise. You need to exercise and grow your faith. And you do that by being obedient to Christ. And it's time to start exercising. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take your cross, and follow me. Now, I need to be really careful with that. That's a really big statement. And, and we can't take that out of context. His disciples knew when he said that, they understood. Christ was telling them, following me, being a follower of Christ, that means a life of suffering. That means death. That means doing what you don't want to do. So I don't want to diminish from that meaning there it's given to us in Scripture. But I do want to focus on two particular words that Christ used there. And that's your cross. Christ said, pick up your cross and follow me. He didn't say pick up a cross. He didn't say pick up my cross. You don't worry about my cross. I don't worry about your cross. But the fact is, absolutely the fact, God has given you a cross. He has given you a task, something to pick up to follow him. And it's laid at your feet, and it's your choice to pick it up and do it. I have a cross and a task that I know that I need to do. And the good thing about God, we've got a good, good father. He gives me the spiritual gifts and the ability to do that task. He also gives me that task and that cross in accordance with my own faith. He's going to help build my faith. And he's going to give me the task that he knows I can do with the gifts he gives me. So it'll be according to my faith and my level of maturity. He'll also give, it, give me the passion to do that. My food, my energy, my life, my drive will be to do that task if I just yield to his spirit and let him do it in me. Now, how do you know that task? That's probably one of the greatest tasks of ministry, to help you know what your task is. To know that, you need to know Jesus. You need to hear him. And you need to obey him. Now, some of your tasks, for some of you, your task is to be that appendix. For some in this room, our task is to come to Christ. For some, our task right now is uh, to draw back closer to God. And that's not for unbelievers or, or people who aren't Christian. That's, that's for those of us who are Christians. We need to pull ourselves back close to God. We need to double down our efforts in Scripture. We need to double down our times in prayer. We need to double down our time together as a body to draw back close to God. And that's the task that God is asking you to do right now. But there's three other areas I want to kind of quickly cover where you may be called to be a co-worker with God and the gospel. One is this, it's in your home. 
You have kids, children in your home, and you have a calling and a task to raise them, to disciple them, to know and to love God. That's my calling. That's one of my tasks. And yes, that is a ministry. It's a very serious ministry to devote your life to raising your kids, to, to discipling them, to know God. I heard somebody say one time that um, raising children is one of the most selfless things you'll ever do. You can raise your kids to know Scripture. You can raise them to see you praying, to know that you pray. Imagine this. I've got kids, 8 and 10. You may have kids anywhere from 1 years old up to 18 years old. Do you engage in a family study time in the Bible? Do you sit down in the evenings, every evening or a couple times a week, and go through a chapter of the Bible together? Read it out loud. You may have to read it first and then explain it to them. Over time, have them read parts of it. And let, let's not be mistaken. If you've got kids my age, the first few times you kind of get into this, maybe even the first few weeks, you'll be lucky to get two or three verses in, in, into a passage before one kid's getting contrary and doesn't want to do it anymore, before one's standing on his head with his feet in the air. You know, it, it's going to try your patience to be with them, to, to, to keep that Bible study. But know this, God is patient with you. In all of our walks of life, he's been patient with you. Be patient with your kids in your Bible studies together with them and do it. Make it fun. Have an ice cream night. Have ice cream and do it real quick. Go through Genesis. When you get to a certain part, watch a movie, a kid's movie about it. Disciple your own kids in your home. That is a ministry that we've been given. The other is this. Within this church, we have a church that serves. It's, it's amazing to me. Every morning for Sunday mornings to go right, we have about 75 to 100 people who come in and volunteer and work in this church to make sure we can have worship service. Probably 75 to 100. If you count them up, think about the number of people in the kids' ministry, the nursery, the AV team, the worship, the Sunday school teachers. There are people who come into this church on Saturday nights to prepare the sanctuary and the communion. There are people who, who refill communion in between services. There's people who come in at 6, 7 o'clock in the morning to make sure the doors are open and coffee is fixed. We have a church that serves. A couple of weeks ago, we ended our uh, jam session, what is, what is basically the replacement for VBS, and we'll announce this a couple weeks ago. There's about 150 people who came and served during jam session at night just so, other, just so kids could have a chance to be in God's Word and know Christ. 150 people, and a lot of those people, they work full-time jobs. Some work more than one job. But they come here in the evenings to work and to serve and to be a part of a co-worker in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a church that serves. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's, and it's a great thing. Another task or ministry, you might look and pray diligently. Say, God, where are you leading me to work? Where should I be a co-worker? Another area? Maybe outside this church. There are missions and, and ministries here locally that you can be a part of. There are missions and ministries that go overseas that you can be a part of. There is a task there for you to do, and, I, and I'm, I'm convicted of that. Now, if you're kind of curious, if you know, hey, God's asking me to do something, and I need to get plugged in, um, that cookout we're having next Sunday night, July 21st, that's a great opportunity to come out. We've got anywhere from 10 to 12, maybe even up to 14 of our missions and missionaries. They'll be there to set up. You can learn about them, what they're doing. No, who, who does this church support? Financially, we support a lot of missions and missionaries. Who are we supporting? Come out and see those people. Meet them. Encourage them. They need that encouragement. So come out and see that. We'll also have a little information about how you can get plugged into this church here. If you're looking for a place to serve, we'll have a little, little information. You can do that. Uh, and that's not a recruiting fair. It's not a job fair. Don't get me wrong. Pray about this diligently to know, God, what are you asking me to do? And don't just sign up for something to sign up. God will put the task in front of you, and you'll know exactly what to do. 1 Peter 4.10. God has given each of you a gift 
from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. If we are living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then a fruit, what we will see, we will be co-workers. Bottom line. Let's move to number two, standing firm. Don't be alarmed by your opponents. Don't be startled. Don't be caught off guard. Trials are going to come. Temptations are going to come. This life of following Christ was never supposed to be easy. It was never supposed to be told to you it was easy. It's going to happen. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead. Come back to God. Now, we are citizens of heaven. Remember that. We are citizens of heaven. While on this earth, we are ambassadors of Christ. Two main things you need to remember today about being an ambassador for Christ here on this earth. Number one, the way you act and behave, the way we live our lives should not bring disgrace to the name of Jesus Christ or the church. Look at the U.S. ambassadors overseas. They need to not do things that would be bring disgrace on the name of the United States. If they're out extorting money, taking bribes, engaged in human trafficking, or just living a drunken, riotous lifestyle, that brings shame to the name of the United States. Similarly, how we behave, how we live our lives should not dishonor Christ. We are a reflection of him, reflecting his glory out into this world. And we need to remember that. And we, we are sure that we can not bring shame to Christ if we are filled by his spirit with the fruits of the spirit. Number two is this, though. One... You need to act and behave accordingly. Number two is this. You need to know the country you're going into. You need to know what you're getting yourself into. A U.S. ambassador traveling to a foreign country, he knows, is that country in the depths of poverty? Is hunger overrunning that country? Is it in civil unrest or on the verge of civil and war? More importantly, is the belief systems and the values of the leadership of that country, are they adverse to the interests of the United States? Are they hostile to our interests? He needs to know that or she needs to know that so that they can do their job effectively. You need to know what you're getting yourself into and be ready. Here's a great example. I heard this in a conference several years ago. Um, this was a study. Some folks were doing this. Uh, actually, it was part of a conference to help people with um, mental fatigue and maintaining mental energy over the long term, over the course of two, three, four months. And they would start this by having this conference. They'd tell people, all right, first thing you need to do to kind of exercise and learn fit mental fatigue and not get fatigued, go run about a mile down and a mile back in this country path, and when you come back, we'll give you a quick test, a quick stress test. Simple enough. Well, halfway through, and they had these big burly uh, football players doing this, and they'd video it. They'd have video cameras in the woods. As they're running through this little path through the woods, they would have some wild animal, a fake wild animal of some sort, kind of rustling, come out at them. And, and the videos would show these, these big burly football players you know, they would basically scream like little girls, tuck tail and turn and run. It'd it scare them. Well, they did the same test with a bunch of soldiers, some elite uh, soldiers. And they're running through the woods. And as soon as there's a commotion over here, they didn't run. They locked. They just stood and locked. They were ready. They were prepared. They knew something was coming. And they were ready. And you need to be ready for that. Don't get caught off guard. Don't be surprised. Do not be intimidated. And don't be alarmed. Terry preached on a core truth that we know and that we believe. John 14, chapter, John 14, verse 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to me except through the Father. No one can come to the Father except through me. Some people will not accept this. Some people will not accept the authority of Scripture. 
Some will oppose it, and some will actively oppose it. We know this. In work or life, if you talk about Jesus, if you talk about the church, people will snicker. They may even ridicule. There's a movement called the New Atheist Movement, and several years ago, one of their leaders was asked, how do you respond to Christians? He said, ridicule them, mock them, make fun of them, put them down. We know this is going to happen, but don't be surprised by this. And guess what? In our culture today, the screws, they're going to tighten down a little bit. Persecution doesn't usually happen overnight, but it comes in stages. And sociology studies have shown this, the stages of persecution. And you need to know these. Number one is stereotyping. In persecution, the first step is stereotyping. And that actually started 30, 40 years ago, probably. Christians were called simpletons. They're backwards. They're Bible thumpers. During the sexual revolution, we were boring. We're sticks in the mud. Now, after stereotyping comes vilifying. Our beliefs, our thoughts, what we hold to, they're harmful. They're hurtful or they're offensive. I, I used to hear that claiming Christ is the only way to salvation. That's offensive to other religions is what we were told. But now we're vilified and we're told our beliefs are are bigoted, we're hateful, we're intolerant. So you go from stereotyping to vilifying. It's harmful and it's hurtful. And because it's harmful and hurtful, the next step of persecution is marginalizing. Don't bring that in the public square. It's hurtful, it's harmful to society. Keep it within the walls of your church. Don't talk about church and your Jesus while you're getting your nails done. Don't hang that banner in your business. We're marginalized. Step number four, criminalization. First, this happens outside the church, then it'll happen inside the church. And what we say, what we do, what we preach inside this church will be criminalized. And we're starting to see some of that, those seeds be planted in our American culture today. Now, somewhere in between those two, probably more closer to marginalizing, but somewhere between marginalizing and criminalizing is censorship. If we want to put our sermons and what we say, what we believe, if we want to put Bible verses on social media or out in the public sphere, we better not say certain things or it'll be cut off. It'll be censored. So somewhere in between there is censorship as well. And the f step number five is this, persecution. So five steps of persecution. Don't be surprised or startled. Don't be alarmed by that. And your opposition will come within the church as well. It's going to come. We know this. It's in Scripture. People within the church will even begin to actively oppose Scripture. People will fall away. Prominent Christian teachers, they're going to fall away and start teaching false doctrines and maybe even attacking us. We cannot wring our hands and say, what in the world is going on? We know it's going to happen. It's been told to us it's going to happen. So we cannot be startled. We cannot be surprised by this. Now, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. So how do we, as ambassadors, respond to this? But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those you revile, revile your good, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. To do this in our culture, we need to know Scripture. We need to know the whole counsel of God and be able to apply. To be able to be ready and give a defense for the hope that is in us, You've got to know Scripture. You've got to be in it. But you also have to be one body. We have to be doing this together faithfully as co-workers and doing this. Francis Chan is a popular speaker and writer. He wrote a book recently called The Letters to the Church, and he wrote this. I kind of thought this was interesting. 
Years ago, I was in China and visited an underground church gathering where I was, asked them, was asking them about persecution. And each person who stood up started sharing stories about persecution he or she had endured. Sometimes they had to hide in walls because the government officials were coming. Some of them had even run from gunshots. But I wish you could hear the way they were sharing. Everyone was just laughing like it was a party. It sounded completely insane to me, hearing them laugh about being shot at. But it didn't faze them because they just expected it. They knew it was going to happen. They weren't surprised by it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13 says this. Don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Number three, unity. Let's be united. Locally, Nineveh Christian Church is a group of believers. We come together. We worship here. We study the Word together. We pray together. We support one another. We are a church. We're an assembly. Romans 16.5. Also, give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. Paul wrote that to the Romans and specifically to, to folks meeting in a church home. But the church is not just this body or individual bodies. It is the collective, all the believers across the world. All parts, all believers. 1 Corinthians 15.9. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. So we are a church. But the church is also the global body of Christ. Now, earlier I mentioned in a body, I think of two things. Each part belongs. Each part has a function. So this is where we come down to each part belongs, and unity is one. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18 through 26. This is a fairly long passage, so kind of bear with it. But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require the special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. And here's the part we need to specifically hone in on today. Verse 26, if one part suffers, all the parts suffer. If one part is honored, all the parts are glad. For a body to function correctly and be healthy, each part has to look out for the health and welfare of all the other parts. We have to look at each other and the health and welfare. We have to build and lift each other up when they need to be built and lifted up. Talking about a body a minute ago, I said, some of you need rest. Some people are broken. We don't cut off broken arms. We heal them, right? We need to look out for each other to the interest of the, of the members of our church. In fact, we are commanded to look beyond ourselves and towards other peoples. And we're commanded to care and build others up. And we're not commanded just to look at other members of our church, but we're commanded to look at other people across the world. We're commanded to look at other churches in our community, in Anderson County, in Kentucky, churches in Southeast Asia, churches in South America. We have to look at them and what do they need and what do we need, need to do to build them up and help them. Absolutely. We have in America, our American church, we have the financial resources, we have the talents, we have the skills to help and build up churches on the other side of the world. 
They have the perseverance and the suffering, though, that we need. Did I read that right? They have the perseverance and suffering that we need. Yes, I did. They have perseverance and suffering, and we have to have that. We need that. When you go to other countries and you see a group of Christians worshiping in a small building, because the other small building they were worshiping, one, worshiping in was burned down a few weeks ago, that shows their perseverance. When they leave their home in the daytime, they know I might not come back without getting an arrest. They persevere through that. They persevere despite their families disowning them and, and sometimes even wanting to kill them. They persevere, and we need that because it convicts us of what we need to do. It builds our faith, and it lets us know these are our brothers and sisters, and we have to be united and one with them. When we see what they go through, it convicts us, and it builds our faith that we need to respond, and we need to respond. We should be firing on all cylinders. We should be pumping to the max right now resources, time, and talents out to this community, out to the world to build up brothers and sisters. And when we see what they go through, it should convict us. Let me say that again. That goes for churches in South America and here in Anderson County. In Africa, when you see churches there who sing and worship like we just don't do here in America anymore, when you see that, it glorifies God and it builds up His church. When you see Christians in the other part of the world who persevere in suffering, it glorifies God and it builds its church. When we use our time and talents and treasures to help those churches who, need, who have needs, it glorifies God and it builds up his church. It does those things. And that's not just for the churches. It also goes for other ministries and other ministries, other ministries and missions. Here in this county and worldwide, church camps are vital to the body of Christ. It puts the word of God in the hands of young people so they can know Christ and it builds them up food pantries, any of those missions, it helps bring the light to the world and show Jesus Christ. And we have a vested interest in making sure they succeed and helping them as a body of Christ. Now, within this church, there's a fairly broad range of people. Fairly, not too diverse. There's some old, there's some young. There's blue collar, there's white collar. We have a lot of people here who have Baptist backgrounds, some people raised in the Catholic church, some Pentecostal holiness. We have a few people. We have people who, who aren't raised in the church at all. Now, on top of that, so we have who we are, some diversity. On top of that, we have a lot of diversity. There is a diversity of, of, of interest and passions and desires and callings and tasks. There are people in this church who are very passionate and driven and called for things that this church is doing. And they know energy and resources need to be put into those ministries. There are people who work within this community in different missions and ministries, and they know, they know time and energy has to be put into those. There's people who are driven to international and overseas missions, and they know and they need energy and resources and passions poured into those. When you put all that diversity together, that can cause tension. It can cause conflict. It can even cause jealousies a lot of time. That can pull apart the unity of a church. When I know, hey, I want this here to succeed, but somebody else needs this to succeed, it can cause division and it can pull us apart, cause jealousies. So how can we keep unity in that? How do we function to keep unity in that? That might seem tough, but it shouldn't be if we're in Christ and being led by Christ. There's two things. Number one, no-brainer. It's no surprise. To keep unity in this church, one purpose, one mind. Jesus Christ. He has to be first. 
the interests and the needs of Christ and his body have to come first before our own ministries and our own needs and our own passions and desires. We can probably all agree on that. Timothy, who is a co-worker of Paul, is a great example of this. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through 21. If the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit, that he can cheer me up by telling me how you're getting along. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. The New American Standard Bible says, verse 21, it says, they all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And understand this, Paul's not talking about just the common person down in the market. He's not talking about the people who are, who are in the imperial guard and who aren't in the church or believers. He's talking about other believers, other people who are ministering and working in ministries there in Rome. They won't leave their own personal ministries for the greater needs of the body of Christ because they're too worried about their own successes. They're too worried about their own little ministries to see the broader needs of Christ. We have to look beyond that and look to what does the body of Christ need. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate to make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other? loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Now that brings us down to number two, and it's a little harder. That's humility. Think of others more important than yourselves, and yes, Scripture says even better than yourselves. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. That comes right after he says, have one mind, one purpose. And then Paul says, don't be selfish. Don't try to, to impress others. Be humble. Then Paul gives us a super, a really vivid illustration of humility. Gives us the greatest example of humility we can see. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. He continues this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, to the point of death. He became self-obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think back to a moment to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 17, verse 5, Christ is praying in the garden before his arrest. And he says, now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Christ was one with God, with the Father. He was God. And he shared in glory. He had all honor and authority. But he put that aside. He said, put that aside, and he became a man just like us. Stair step verses 5 through 8 down. He became a man. Not just a man, a servant. He became a slave. Not just a servant, not just a nobody, somebody who's willing to die, obedient to death. And then not just obedient to death, death on a cross, the most torturous, humiliating way probably to die that day. He did all that. He put aside his glory and his honor, became a lowly servant, a nobody. He humbled himself. I am often humbled. I, often, I am often humbled. Rarely will I humble myself. But Christ did. 
and he did it for you and for me. And now each of us, we are commanded to have that same attitude. We are commanded to have the same attitude individually and then also as a body and within this body. Have the same attitude of Christ. We need to put to death. We need to put aside whatever is important to us. We need to put aside whatever we take pride in, whatever we value, whatever we think is ours. Put that aside for the benefit of other people. That is so that Christ can be glorified and so that his church can be built, made into a complete body and mature. And let me say this too. You must, you are commanded to become a humble servant, a slave, a nobody willing to die so that somebody else can have life. Amen. The same life you were given, the same life I was given, we need to set everything we've got aside so somebody else can have life. And if we are living lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the attitude that will be within us. And it will make us one. It will draw us into, hum into unity as one body to serve and to build each other up. Mark 9, verse 35. He sat down, called the disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. And then Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. And we need to be a part of that. When Christ was crucified, when he was crucified, the veil in the temple was torn, top to bottom. And that veil separated the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat, where God was at, from the rest of the temple. And that signified that now man had access to God. If Christ is our mediator, if Christ is our Savior, we boldly, we confidently, we can go before God and make our petition. And when Christ died, that wasn't just for Jews. That was for Gentiles. That was for people like us, right? Non-Jews. We are now brought into the family of God. We are now part, co-heirs with Christ. Ephesians 3, 6. And this is God's plan. Both Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God, by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Jesus Christ. Now, before Christ, that was a mystery. Ephesians 3.9 says it was actually it was hidden in God, the fact that Gentiles could be reconciled to Jews. It was a mystery, but now it is revealed. And Paul writes this, Ephesians 3.10, he writes this, an astounding statement. If this doesn't, this is astounding to me, 3.10. God's purpose in all this was to use the church, the church, to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Angels look at the church. They look at what's happening, and it declares God's wisdom to them. What we are doing, what is happening on this earth, declares God's wisdom to people in the church, in, 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 in spirits, in, in the spiritual realm. God planned the church from the beginning. He planned this from the beginning. And then with Christ, he set Christ, he established that church with Christ as the cornerstone. That he laid the foundation with the apostles and the prophets. And by the Holy Spirit, he is continuing to build his church today. One person at a time. And ask Chad to come on out. The Jews, that church, and the building of that church, 
The Jews, they couldn't stop it. Nero, he tried to destroy it, but he couldn't. In countries around the world today, they can't arrest people fast enough to stop the growth of the church. And how? We don't fight with weapons of war. We fight with prayer. We serve other people. We die for other people, but the church keeps building. Why? Because it's the wisdom of God, and that is how it works. And if you are in Christ, you are a part of that plan. You are a part of the body of Christ that declares wisdom to rulers and authorities in heaven. If you are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, this is your chance. And the invitation is open. You can join his body. You can join his church. You can be a part of this plan today. So 